0: Hi, and welcome to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Monday, July 17th, and I'm Scott Walston, president of TPI. Today, discussions about AI, and in particular, generative AI, seem to be everywhere, with governments thinking about whether and how to regulate it. The EU, in particular, has been aggressive about regulating tech, and it's implementing the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which regulate how large platforms behave, and the Parliament recently approved a draft AI Act, which, as its name implies, would regulate artificial intelligence. So we're going to talk about Europe and tech today, mostly as it has to do with AI, and so we're thrilled to have with us Peter Brown to educate us. So Peter is a senior policy advisor at the Strategy and Innovation Unit of the European Parliament. He recently returned to Brussels after serving as a senior advisor in technology policy in the European Parliament's liaison office in Washington, D.C. Prior to working with the European Parliament, he's advised several Fortune 500 companies and many national governments and international organizations on technology strategy and governance in cloud, cyber, Internet of Things, AI, and data. He's been engaged in global standardization policy and IT standards development for more than 25 years. Peter, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Good to see you again. So why don't we start off by just tell us about the AI Act. What is it? What does it hope to do? Or what what does it aim to do? And and what's kind of motivating European legislators?
1: Well, I think the, I mean, we have to remember the sort of context where the European Union is operating in terms of having, unlike, say, the US and other geopolitical areas, has, as part of its treaty, very much a sort of uh, consumer and um, citizen-centric approach to legislation. So whilst there are clearly economic and societal benefits for the uptake of artificial intelligence and other emergent technologies, there are concerns about the implications that AI systems might have for fundamental rights, which are protected under, for example, the European Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights, as well as safety concerns for uses when AI technologies are embedded in products and services. So the general approach for legislating on AI has been what the European Commission in its initial proposal talked about, a sort of human-centric approach to AI to ensure that Europeans can benefit from new technologies developed according to the eu's values and principles it started off in i think it was early 2020 with a white paper on artificial intelligence the european commission set up a high level expert group with input from a range of experts 50 plus experts from private sector from research from public sector agencies to look at the whole approach their initial approach was to have a sort of was a more sort of non-binding approach to having a set of ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI and looking at a number of policy and investment recommendations. But it shifted largely as a result of that high-level expert group to an approach which was saying that Europe needed a set of harmonized rules for the development, placing on the market, and use of AI systems. So that's basically where the initial commission position started from. And the legislation or the draft legislation as was presented to the parliament covered these sort of very much sort of technology neutral definitions of AI systems, a risk-based approach to how AI is deployed and which lays down different requirements and obligations for the development, placing on the market and use of AI systems within the EU. When doing this, did they consider how this might affect the, the direction
0: that technology develops. I mean, they have this idea that this will push it in a good direction, but we're still so close to the beginning of this, and we don't really know where it's going to be, where it's going to go. Do they approach this in sort of a cost-benefit sense, or do they just approach it in a, well, these are all the bad things that can happen, so let's make sure they can't?
1: No, I, I understand that. And I think the the European Union has a range of instruments and a range of policy initiatives which go from that more protective approach that you're talking about where you know you you tend to err on the side of caution the so-called precautionary principle that governs a lot of consumer protection and data protection and privacy legislation in the European Union but it goes all the way through to investing in innovation looking at ways that the European Union through its various industrial policies and research programs can actually promote new technologies, obviously for the benefit of good. So in that sense, I think there is this balance to be struck between what might be seen as a sort of preemptive and rather conservative, cautious approach that maybe typifies a lot of certainly outsiders' views of what the European Union does in terms of various areas of policy, with the recognition that this is not something which is going to go away, that it is emergent, as you say, both AI and a range of other technologies. And as such, you've got to find, you've got to strike a balance between encouraging that innovation and not sort of killing it before it gets anywhere, but at the same time trying to stay faithful to those guiding principles which are, which are enshrined in the European Union's treaties and the, the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So, you know, kind
0: of embedded in your answer, and I don't know, maybe I'm not hearing it the right way, I don't know if you intended it this way, but it also sounded like there's a little bit of protectionism in there, and of course that's always what Americans say when they hear about European, various European rules and regulations, but that you want, they want to promote innovation and development of, I assume, of companies and organizations in Europe, but I I actually haven't heard really that as part of the AI Act, and I don't know what companies it would be benefiting in Europe. Did you mean it that way?
1: With, with oh, I, I use the word protectionist in a negative sense, and I don't necessarily Yeah, I know. Realize. I understand that. No, I don't think there is that sense that it mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of trying to sort of wall off a European market against, you know, the sort of aggressive American big tech firms or whatever, which is, you know, a bit the sort of the bogeyman that sometimes is, mm-hmm. is that you hear about. I think, and when you look at the, Key legislators involved, both from the European Commission who initially proposed this and the lead legislators in the European Parliament that have been promoting the draft in a way that sort of crystallizes many of the European Parliament's priorities. You've got a group of people that are clearly tech savvy, on the ball in terms of where technology is heading, understanding some of the core issues at heart, and without any offense to U.S. Congress here, but we've seen over the years in the U.S. Congress, I mean, its demographic is different. I mean, it's, uh, the the average age of members of Congress is is probably higher than the average it is for the European Parliament. There's a sort of bit of a generational gap there. The higher
0: age of Congress is higher than the most
1: nursing homes. Um, so <laughs> I wouldn't dare comment on that. <laughs> I have to be diplomatic, but 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 I think there's a grain of truth in what I'm saying in that. I remember the very first hearing with Facebook, you know, and some of the almost cringeworthy questions from some of, the, some of the members of Congress, which showed that they their understanding of technology was very superficial. They were sort of talking to the gallery without really understanding some of the issues here. I have to say I have been, and in terms of my own age and experience, I'm probably close to the age of the average <laughs> US legislator here than the the average European Parliament one. But I've been very impressed that the key legislators on the European side, both in Parliament and the people pushing it from the European Commission initially, are really on the ball. They really understand in depth the technologies. And I think it's far from their wishes to create any sort of walled garden for protectionist approach for the European Union, but rather to sort of establish a good status, a good balance between innovation, and those sort of requirements, which are really, you know, they're central to the European Union's mission of defense of human rights, defense of the individual, of consumers, of customers, and of citizens. So I think the fact that you've got a pretty well-informed legislature there has been to the benefit here. And I think most parties, you know, there are quibbles about details of the policy, that's clear. But I think most of the people that I've spoke to who have engaged with the parliament and the commission over the last two years have been impressed by the the level and quality of debate that we've seen.
0: This is a, a good
1: chance, I think, to step back a bit.
0: And maybe you can tell us a little about how bills become laws in the European parliament. I mean, lots most a lot of our listeners are Know in great detail how that happens here, and you know Senator So and So is supporting this because they need X, Y, and Z, and we know the the nitty gritty. Although you know to me the Schoolhouse Rock is still the canonical explanation of how a bill becomes (laughs) a law. But you know, tell us a little bit about that in the European Parliament and who are the actors that matter there, and and you know what is it that they
1: that they want? Okay, from a sort of maybe a slightly dry academic point of view, it's a it's a relatively easy cascade of of things to get our heads around. We start with the treaties of the European Union. So unlike national legislatures, that basically if if an elected member in in a legislature decides that they want to propose a piece of legislation on whatever, the legislature is sovereign in terms of what it wants to legislate on. In the European Union's case there is a very clear and very detailed description of what the competences of the european union are particularly vis-a-vis authority and competences of the individual member states and therefore a large part of the treaty the particularly the so-called treaty on the functioning of the european union one of the core elements here lays out very clearly what the european union can and cannot do and in some There are certain areas of policy which are explicitly laid out. So, for example, on agriculture policy, industrial policy, competition policy, international trade, energy. These are areas which are explicitly covered in the treaties. Others are a little more sort of indirect, like the so-called completion of the internal market, which means realizing in practice this this theoretical goal of having a single European market of goods, services, people, and flow of capital between the EU member states without any friction, without any barriers. And that so-called legal basis, and I'll come back to that in a moment, gives a lot of wiggle room for legislators to say, well, we think this particular piece of legislation or this particular idea is important for the functioning of the European internal market. And therefore, that's our basis for working on. In addition, and this is relevant particularly for the AI Act, you've also got references in the treaty to privacy and particularly to data protection. So you've got the treaties to start with, which lay down what the European Union can and can't do. Then the actual process starts with the European Commission. Interestingly, and again, in contrast to many national legislatures, the European Parliament as as a legislature does not have a right of legislative initiative. In other words, anything which is proposed as a future EU law has to be initiated, with one or two very minor exceptions, has to be initiated by the European Commission. The European Commission does this in two ways. Firstly, it examines what needs to be done in a particular area, what it thinks should be done, and looks for the basis in the treaties, the so-called legal basis to act and say, okay, we can, we have authority to work in this area and we will propose something. And secondly so what, what, what does that mean in
0: practice? I mean, how does how does that affect the agenda that's proposed and the rules that end up moving through the parliament? Does it mean that I guess who are the people then who
1: set the agenda? Okay. So what you have, I mean the you have european parliament elections every 5 years yeah. the european parliament is then has a role together with the member states to nominate and to have confirmed a new president of the european commission who then once nominated goes about finding the other members of the of the commission the so called college of commissioners which are you know there's a sort of um negotiation then between member states and the parliament to establish a College of commissioners who will be responsible, given responsible responsibilities for particular portfolios, like you would do with individual secretaries or ministers in, in a national government. Now, that college of commissioners, once confirmed, just as a little side by, you know, the confirmation process was actually inspired very much by the confirmation processes in U.S. Congress for senior executive officials. Once that commission is established, it has a obligation, not a legal one under the treaties, but a sort of political obligation to lay out a program of work of what it thinks its five-year mission should try and achieve. What it then breaks that down to is then what's called an annual legislative program. The commission then year by year presents, normally around September, It presents a program of work for the following calendar year saying, these are the areas that we think are important. Now, for this current legislature, so 2019 to 2024, the Commission laid down five sort of main pillars of work, one of which was the so-called digital agenda for Europe. And under that digital agenda, there's been, in each of the annual programs that we've seen coming from the Commission, there have been a whole range of Legislative proposals. So that's the sort of, if you like, high level political framework. Then that is put into practice with the Commission making individual legislative proposals based on a, a legal basis in the treaties, as I mentioned. They make a proposal, it comes to the Parliament as the one branch of the legislature and to the European Council, or rather the Council of the European Union, which represents the Member states. It's a bit facile to make make a comparison with sort of House of Representatives and Senate, but there are some parallels. Mm-hmm. But basically, the Parliament together with the Council has to take the initial proposal from the Commission and agree with each other, the Council and Parliament, on a position. And they each, on their own side, make amendments, propose uh, changes to the Commission proposal. They then go into like the equivalent of a conference committee in in. Congress to negotiate and come up with the final final text. And once that process has been finished, then the draft legislation, which initiated maybe up to a year or longer before from the commission, then gets to the point of being signed off as uh, law with often a specific date for entry into force of of the law. And as in many of the tech areas, dates or deadlines by which certain provisions of the law have to be enacted. So who are the,
0: for the AI Act, who are the sort of the the key people, you know, sponsoring it, involved in it, pushing it? I mean, here, if a bill is, if it's from Elizabeth Warren, people will think one thing. If it's from Ted Cruz, people will think another thing. What's the analog here for the AI Act?
1: There isn't a comfortable and easy analogy to make for two reasons. One, it's a large, complex, multinational institution with 27 member states. I think 107 national parties represented within the European Parliament, 700 plus members. Most of the members of Parliament are organized into transnational party political caucuses. So the seven major caucuses. So there isn't a simple majority and minority, you know, with a chair of a committee and a a uh, ranking member like you have in in the house and senate so because no single political family has a plurality or an absolute majority of votes in the parliament there has to be compromise and that compromise is normally a cooperation between those or numbers of those political caucuses those political groups as we call them that in itself i think is a big difference because the what happens is Let's take the AI Act. The proposal comes to the commission. The parliament, first of all, decides which should be the lead standing committee or committees that should take responsibility for the piece of legislation. Then once that's determined, within each committee, they will decide through negotiations and discussions... Which members or which political group should take the sort of leadership positions, the sort of key legislator positions, which the position we call rather elegantly, the, using the French word, the rapporteur, that becomes the sort of spokesperson for that committee and is the main negotiator and lead legislator for that committee, and which will have been agreed between the political groups. Behind that lead legislator, there are what we call the shadow rapporteurs, which are Basically, the other political groups nominate somebody as well to basically keep an eye on the lead rapporteur and to advise, push back, negotiate when particularly there are positions which are where there isn't a broad consensus and work behind the scenes to try and build that consensus. So a lot of the process in parliament, distinct from the sort of bipartisan approach that, you know, for better or worse, you see in many national parliaments means that a broad consensus is necessary because you, the reality, the numerical reality today in the European Parliament is nothing will get adopted unless it has the support at least of three of the seven political groups, if, assuming that they, you know, they follow their respective party line or internal party discipline.
0: What does it mean for the draft legislation to be approved? I mean, does that, is that a signal
1: that is almost certain that this will become a law? Not necessarily. We we have had situations where the parliament has come to a consensus on something, and it's the position is very different from that of the commission, and the council, I'd say, representing the member states of the European Union, might have a very different position. And the negotiations may or may not get to a position where they have a compromise there, and could break down, and you end up with no legislation at all. In most situations there is a final position, which is, so you where we are at the moment with the the AI Act, for example, is the commission made its proposal. The council already adopted its position, I think, in December last year, relatively quickly. Parliament took much longer, I think went into more detail maybe than the council. It adopted its position in June. And having done so, that parliament position is effectively the negotiating mandate now for the leadership of the parliamentary committees that are driving that draft, that's their negotiating mandate to go talk with the council to try and agree a final compromise on those areas where there is still disagreement.
0: So let's come back to the act itself for a moment. How will we know if it turned out to be successful if it passes? I mean, will they, you know, if Skynet doesn't take over, will they say, well, there you go. It, it all worked out well. Or do they hope to see, what what is it that they want to see? How will we know if it's successful, or if it succeeds or fails?
1: It's a good question. I mean, the cynical side of me sort of says, well, if it doesn't work, political leaders, whether in the parliament or in the commission will say, well, that's because you didn't fully support the position that we'd, with that, we'd argued for. And if it succeeds, they'll say it's that's because you did accept the compromise that we put forward. Trying to assess in in this sort of thing the sort of criteria for, you know, the what are your success criteria is always going to be difficult. That said, I think, and I hesitate, but I think it's necessary. I hesitate to make the comparison with, say, GDPR, which was the last big sort of tech-focused, horizontal piece of legislation, horizontal in the sense, you know, sort of broad application across all areas. And I think most people, and I think the parliament would be amongst the first to say, we didn't get it all right. You know, we set a very high bar for what we thought was necessary to protect fundamental rights and uh, privacy of European citizens. And we didn't get it all right. And we didn't, get it all right, particularly in areas of international cooperation. The fact that we're now sort of just seeing the sort of third attempt to get a sort of an agreement with the US on exchange of personal data. Everyone's crossing their fingers and hoping that it'll stand in courts of law this time. But there was clearly, it was a very ambitious project and a lot of it worked. And there was a lot of complications in its application. And I think there are, there are people quite legitimately saying, you know, we could have done better and there's other things we should have addressed. I think nobody, I haven't spoken to anybody, either legislators, staffers, or anybody who believe that the AI Act is going to be the sort of be all and end all of legislation in this area. The approach was rather to identify what were the core concerns in terms, particularly about risk, of what is unacceptable risk in potential deployment of AI systems where you cross a red line or you don't want organizations crossing a red line. You're saying, you know, we will not do this in the European Union. And then for the rest, trying to identify what is low or minimal risk, which requires no intervention, what is limited risk, which may need some either self-certification or attestations by providers of solutions saying, well, we've, looked at the AI system we're deploying and that, you know, we're being transparent with you and sharing what we think is how our system works and we don't think there is a big risk. Of course, the big focus is on the regulated high-risk AI systems where there are much more clear approaches in terms of what needs to be done. And I think it's precisely in that area where in terms of identifying not just success criteria, but identifying whether it's been successful or not, I think will be not easy to, to, to judge, but can be assessed because everything falling within that high-risk category is going to be subject to a series of conformance criteria and proofs by the producers of the AI systems that they are in conformity with the, with, with the provisions. So what's an um,
0: example of a very high-risk AI
1: Let's think. One of the most controversial areas has been the use of biometrics for mm. identifying when people, you know, natural persons. There is a sort of red line that both the commission laid down and which the European Parliament strengthened, which was say it was about the use of biometric identification in real-time situations where AI is used in real time to on a Large public, say, for example, in a public space, in a, in a sports stadium, in a shopping mall or whatever, that sort of real time biometric identification of ind- individuals was unacceptable in terms of the sort of potential infringements on, on private life. However, even in the high risk areas, they're saying, well, biometric identification can be used and there are plenty of situations where it's actually of benefit both for the individual and for the organization using it i mean think of things like border control management and boarding planes or whatever i mean my most recent arrival in the us you know the um, border control official just takes a takes a photo of me and matches that against my passport on file and sees that i'm the person that claims to be so and um, no more questions i'm through so there are clearly benefits of biometric identification However, if you start using biometric identification to categorize people, particularly protected groups of sort of categorizing people by, by race, by ethnicity, by gender, or whatever, and then using that identification for other purposes, then you get into that sort of uncomfortable area where the European Union is sort of saying, no, we don't like that. So, biometric ID, I think, is one of those areas where there is, and it's one of the eight specific areas that are laid down in the in the Draft Act, which covers in detail the sort of provisions that people need to implement in order to stay on the right side of the law there. But there are others, you know, on operational critical infrastructure, in the field of education, in law enforcement, administration of justice, democratic processes, employment, many many of which I think are also familiar to, will be familiar to. Um,
0: so. how, how have different groups reacted to it, from companies to public interest groups I mean we you know here when you hear from any major company that's or organization that's doing AI they will say we think there should be some regulation and of course much less uh, specific as to what how do they engage with the parliament I guess it's two questions what does lobbying look like there not just from companies but from other groups i mean it has, yeah. lobbying has a bad name but you got to you need to have some kind of interface and what have the different groups thought about it and how have they tried to influence it
1: the first one is relatively straightforward in the sense that, yes, lobbying is there. I don't think it has such a bad name as some people might think. We recognize that different interest groups want to promote their interest and want to peddle influence where they can. Mm. What we do have is a so-called transparency register, which requires that anybody who is lobbying the European institutions and the European Parliament in particular are registered. So you actually have a register of Of lobbyists and with a declaration of their interests, of you know where they're coming from, who they represent, if they are not representing themselves directly. So there is an element of transparency there already in the lobbying process, which is, I think, is good. I personally think, and I think that's shared by a large majority of people in the European Parliament, that the rules about how and where and what circumstances lobbyists can access elected members and influence them, maybe need tightening up or need to be clarified more. But the general sense is lobbying is part of the daily work of the, the institution. I don't think anybody would see that otherwise. So in that sense, I think it's there and we, we recognize it and people work with it. In terms of your second question, in terms of how that sort of manifested itself on the AI Act, you can actually see, and again, it's a matter of public record, in the European Parliament's resolution, which lays down its, its point of view and its proposed amendments to the draft legislation, in the annex to that, there is actually a, a complete list of every single organisation that has lobbied the Parliament during the process of the piece of legislation, who they've spoken to, where the meetings have taken place, I think, yeah, when the meetings have taken place, and who's been involved. So again, there is... An element of transparency there, which I think is helpful, but it also highlights just the vast range of organisations that have been approaching the Parliament. We've had everybody from the sort of European Association of Consumer Bodies, right through to you know the big tech companies themselves, or trade associations and others who represent those and other companies. So we've had the whole whole panoply of different representations. I think in terms of the substance of what they have lobbied on, the one thing, well, first of all, I think a lot of private sector bodies naturally are averse to regulation. They believe in a free market. They want it to operate with as few impediments as possible. That does fly in the face. A lot of sort of core principles of the European Union when it comes to conflicts, as I've said, with the certain fundamental principles of the the way the european union works but generally private sector entities will obviously try and lobby to minimize their um, regulation that said when it's clear that there is going to be some regulation i think the biggest thing they want and i think without speaking for them that's that's their job but i would say is clarity clarity and lack of ambiguity and as long as the rules are clear and they apply to everybody There is a recognition whether they like what the rule is saying or not. Then as long as it's, it's coherent and fair in terms of applying across the entire market, there's a recognition of, okay, we all have to play to the same rule book and we can deal with that. Again, with reference to GDPR, I thought that was interesting. A lot of the big tech companies were very skeptical about the GDPR and about its initial drafts. But once it was approved, many of the US, Big tech companies, Facebook, Microsoft, and so on, were amongst the first to fully conform with the provisions of GDPR. And they sort of said, well, if this is what the law is going to be, we want to be there and conform with it as soon as possible and actually make it part of our. Um, I mean, that's
0: not really surprising, right? One of the, the effects is to make it harder for it, make entry harder. So, of course, the big guys like it.
1: Exactly. And this for me has always been a bit of an irony about mm-hmm. EU legislation in the tech area. And, you know, I'm, don't want go too much off the reservation here in saying this, but <laughs> my opinion was very much the GDPR. There was a risk with GDPR, which I think has been proven to be legitimate, which was the people that are going to be able to conform the most easily are those who have the economies of scale built into their organizations to be able to do so. And although it costs a lot of money to conform with GDPR and a lot of effort, legal, technical, and other changes in organizations to conform, that's clearly easier in a large multinational corporation than it is for a small or struggling medium-sized enterprise. And I think, again, without speaking out of line, my biggest concern for the AI Act, as is with a number of other the policy areas in, in tech, is the maybe, and I'm not saying this is the case because it, it clearly isn't in many areas but if it is the case that one of your objectives is to try to sort of rein in the the, the sort of overbearing power of large of big tech and the big tech companies you have to be careful on how you go about that because you could end up just hurting your domestic or other small businesses that want to try and get a foot in the foot in the market because they just don't have the wherewithal to do the assessments the conformity the certification regimes that are laid down by these various pieces of legislation.
0: So to push you a little further into the danger zone in terms of keeping (laughs) your employment, and I'll just be very, I'll be very blunt and recognize that this is actually a nuanced question. But, you know, a lot of people will look at this and say, "Okay, Europe keeps passing these rules on the digital economy. And uh, you know what? There are no big European tech companies. With a you know, very small number of exceptions, tech innovation does not come from Europe anymore. Why does the par- European Parliament look at this landscape and think, you know what we need? We need more of what we've done that didn't work. Well, first of all, <laughs> I'd push not, not that I'm putting, setting this up in any biased sort of way, of course, but
1: no, but I'm, first of all, I'd push back on what you say. Yeah,
0: yeah please.
1: I think Siemens, SAP, Nokia, and plenty of other, yeah, Ericsson other corporations in, in the US would disagree with you, mm-hmm. uh, in the Europe would, would disagree with you that there isn't a European tech market. I think there is a historical issue there, which is not, not an EU problem or a potential solution, which is, yes, there has been historically a lack of investment in emerging technologies. Within individual countries in the European Union, or there's been a divestment of that of that early innovation. Whether you you can see that through ICL in in Britain, right through to most recently with the acquisitions of ARM, you know, which is one of the the biggest breakthroughs in sort of um, semiconductor chip manufacturing that that the world's seen in the last few decades. We just Europe or its individual member states didn't see. It has a strategic priority to hold on to some of those. And I think part of the problem we have, and that is, and this issue is recognized in the European Union, which is we don't have the economies of scale in the sense of we have 27 member states, each with their own agenda, each with their own priorities, each with their own investment ideas and R&D programs. And what the European Union can provide on top of that is relatively modest compared with what the individual member states could do or the member states together can provide. So, yeah, there's a sort of recognition. There is a bit of catching up. I don't think anybody really believes that the way to do, to encourage European tech is by, you know, beating US or other big tech over the head and hoping they just get the hell out of the European market. I don't think anybody seriously believes. Yeah. There are probably a few there are a few people who who would believe that but i think there is this sense of tempering the completely free market model that the us has traditionally had with that broader societal concerns which are encapsulated in the eu treaties which does make the european union as a polity different and have a different balance of interests and in terms of how it how it does policy so in that sense yes It'll tend to be much less sort of unfettered free market. Uh, is, is
0: there a is there
1: an affirmative tech
0: policy in Europe? I mean, these what we've been talking about are sort of I don't want to say that they're negative, but it's about controlling tech and how it how it develops. But what are the um, are there initiatives to encourage it? I mean, those like so far the DSA so Threads isn't available yet in Europe, right? Because Meta is right. worried about complying with DSA. And if people like threads instead of Twitter, that's obviously already consumer harm. So that's, you know, kind of on the negative side.
1: What's kind of the affirmative agenda? I mean, I think there are a couple of clear examples. One is the so-called Horizon Europe program from the European Union, which is a you know, major tech investment program and R&D program, which has allowed the European Union to stay pretty, pretty much at the forefront of, of certain key areas, like in quantum computing. That's not an area where sort of either the U.S. or, for that matter, China has been the sort of unchallenged number one in that area. It's where I think a lot of European companies have are sort of batting their weight. Other area is the European version of the Chips Act. You know, the mm-hmm. desire to invest in silicon chip manufacturing and to secure the supply chain that that involves in such a way that you are able to build, to manufacture, build and deploy in, in Europe without having the risk of either supply chain disruptions or having to rely on third country suppliers to your, to your market. So, I think those are, those, those are a, a couple of areas. In the area of AI, there's an area where I think it's starting to be looked at. And I think we probably talked about this when we, when we first chatted back in April in the roundtable in, in Washington. I think the European Union has something which nobody else can really challenge anyone on in the area of AI, and that's in the whole area of multilingualism because of the nature of the European Union and the fact that goods and services are can be freely exchanged across the European Union member states, that poses a challenge for whether it's just the simple translation of regulatory and conformity statements in, in documentation, whether it's in user guides or in real time in being able to converse with, say, a hospital administrator when you're on holiday in a third country and you don't speak the language. So for the European Union to invest in The multilingual issues around AI, I think, is something which would be extremely welcome and where there is a clear value proposition that nobody else can provide. Okay, I think that takes us
0: to the end of our our time, and that's a good place to stop because it's a positive note. So, Peter, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, It's really interesting, as always.